my mask and wash my hands after going home. I am the king of the ring. It's a good tuna, but I think I paid too much. Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 113. It is I, Matthew PM Bigelow. Dot coming at you from the Samoncho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. From the armpit of Asia. Welcome to the podcast that talks about Tokyo markets and AI, tech news. A rising conflict in the Indo-Pacific, the Japanese economy, and more. Odd items as well, depending on how lucky we get. And uh, you can go to MatthewPMBigelow.com for all of the podcasting needs here. Some show notes, links, donation ideas, and more. Well, thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'm recording this back-to-back on the last podcast. I just have enough time, and we'll just see how it goes. Otherwise, we'll lose a bunch of the prep. I don't like losing prep. I prepped that stuff. It's like throwing away stuff in the fridge that you've already cut up and for some reason don't use because you'd rather go out and eat at a restaurant. I get it. <clears throat> so we all know about these um, robots that are going around taking our jobs. <laughs> these are uh, happening more and more in uh, the restaurant industry and especially the so-called family restaurant industry in Japan. And there's always this um, dichotomy or there's always this like you choose your own adventure here. You can live in a world where there's a labor shortage. Okay, you live, you can. Let's just, this is Japan at the moment. You're living in a world with a labor shortage. You choose the robots or you choose the immigrants. Which one do you choose? Then you think, depends on the robots. It depends on the immigrants. Well, the immigrants are from China. And the robots are from China. Are you being racist? No. Chinese people aren't robots. And robots made from China aren't Chinese people. I'm not saying that at all. Just that's where it's manufacturing. That's where most of the immigrants in Japan are from at the moment. Aside from Vietnam, they're coming up as a close second these days. But due to the labor shortage, a lot of family restaurants are choosing alternative hiring methods. Let's just put it that way. Sometimes you go in and there'll be like a whole bunch of women in their 80s and 90s trying to operate a touchscreen so that you can order a hamburger. Not the best. Why not just make it a robot in that case? You're using a touchscreen. It's pretty much a robot anyways. It's a user interface. Um, Or you go into a ramen restaurant and... Almost everybody there is um, Vietnamese. Okay. The ramen's going to be all right, but at the same time, you're like, hmm, okay. It's like going into a Vietnamese restaurant and everybody there is from France. Bonjour, monsieur. Voudrez-vous some pho? Uh, Yeah. Okay. All right. How about a banh mi sandwich? No, monsieur. No, monsieur, for banh mi sandwich. Um... But we have this idea of the robots are coming in. And I've been to some family restaurants where they've hired some developmentally disabled people. They're not very good at organizing um, themselves. Uh, You know, uh, I'll order some food. The food, the, the ordering process is fine. The food comes out, but a customer comes in as the disabled person, the mentally disabled person is bringing up my dish. Well, that person doesn't know what to do. So they return my dish to the kitchen 
and then seat everybody and then go back into the kitchen and take my dish out to me. Which is not the worst thing in the world, but at the same time, you could maybe give the person the dish and then go and seat the people. I don't know. Or it could be a robot. So a lot of these family restaurants are turning to robots. And I know that the disabled people need to do something. And sometimes a customer-facing job works and it doesn't. I'm just saying we're living in a world with robots or alternative hiring measures. And a lot of people are going for the robots. Um, these delivery robots have been introduced far and wide. They're they're not ubiquitous, but there's enough there's enough going on these days where you go into a, a, a restaurant and oh, it's one of those those robots that are going around. It's not the most um, incredible technology, but at the same time, it's it's no longer surprising. So people are putting their robot stories onto Twitter, and we're just going to begin today. You know. Um, who knows, maybe someday uh, a robot will be making your ramen. And uh, you think, well, maybe that's, if it's done to spec according to the Japanese chef and it's being replicated with advanced artificial intelligence so that you get the, the, the best Japanese chef for ramen in every ramen restaurant that uses that wherever you go around Japan with little to no variability. It's like McDonald's, but using AI to make sure that the quality ingredients are used and it's made to spec according to the visionary instead of being replicated and replicated and replicated uh, by uh, individuals. You know, when you get to the fast food level of things, it doesn't matter where you go. A Big Mac tastes like a Big Mac. But if you go into a fine dining establishment or someplace that has a special ramen way to make it, well, if the person that makes the ramen according to the master's um, wishes don't do it according to the master's wishes, you're not getting that master's wishes in your ramen. They're depriving you of your master's, the master's ramen's wishes, essentially. But with the robot, they could program the wishes into the artificial intelligence so that the information in the soup, according to the chef's understanding of things, is transmuted into the consumer of the soup. Maybe that will be one day, but for the time being, we're stuck with these waiter robots. And um, some people have some ideas. These are just some uh, things I found on uh, Twitter. You know, there people have their cameras out and they're doing their own little kind of Xing or posting on X or Twitter about their interactions with these robots. This one comes to us from John King or Klung, not sure. It's just whatever from October 15th. We're recording this on October 17th, by the way, 2023. They've started giving the Gusto robots name tags. Meet Yuki, our waitstaff. I asked the manager about the change and was told that they've started doing this because the robots are nakama meaning colleagues. I love how they use the exact same type of clip and holder for their names. So you have this robot giant tin can with a touchscreen on the front and it has a name tag, Yuki. So that person's approving. And then somebody else responds, Daily Japan uh, says, robot server at Jonathan's in Kagurazaka. Jonathan's is a major family restaurant chain. And it's um, much the same. It's a tray. It's like a mobile tray and it has a few different trays on it. And it comes to your uh, table and the tray that's for you lights up with a giant LED light. And you take your food off the tray and now it's for you. Um, now, the next person says, um, um, 
there's been a change on some buttons, but now it's covered in Halloween stickers. Oh, so they're getting uh, like seasonal. Last one says, hi, um, I had one at Coco's yesterday, another family restaurant. My hamburg steak was delivered by a robot. Ordering is touchpad. This is the point. This is the point. Zero waitresses for an hour. Now, when you are looking at these business models, and I've analyzed them deeply, and not completely, but pretty darn good, and I've been in restaurants with the... QR code app and you don't even need to talk to anybody. You you go in and you you scan the QR code and it comes up with a menu on your phone. It's not even an app. It's like a web browser. And then you order and it sends it to the restaurant cook and the cook makes it and then the server staff brings it out. Well, when if you're not doing this correctly, you really stand to have a boost in your business and then a sharp decrease in your business because people still want to interact with people. I know I sure do. So what happens is a restaurant replaces all of the staff, all of its floor staff with robots or replaces all of the tables with QR codes. And they don't tell the staff working there that one person, like a concierge type of person, needs to be the human element on top of the technology, the cherry on top. And they need to kind of come around every few minutes and go around to the tables, make sure they're clean. That's one thing robots are not good at doing. And also fielding any questions. Like somebody might have a question about the technology and you say, yeah, we've introduced it recently. And I'm here, you know, you have any questions, any way to improve it? And then that person can interact on top of the technology with the clientele so that you still have, if the client wants it, a person there wandering around giving it a human touch. That's still a very important quality in the restaurant industry for so many people. Now, when you have no waitresses for an hour and you have people coming and going and coming and going and coming and going, how do you know what's clean and what's dirty? How do you know if people are happy or not happy? There's a huge element of the business model that's being just thrown out with the wait staff. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the day, at first, hey, look, it's a robot. But then you go in there again and, oh, these tables are dirty. And then you go in there again, like, hey, this robot's dirty. And then you go in there again and the exterior, the customer facing segment of the business model, the restaurant, is, is, is being ignored for the most part because everybody just fantastically imagines that it's being handled by the smartphone and by the robot. Therefore, I'm not needed here and it's all taken care of all by itself. Of course, what's happening is uh, all of those wait staff that are still employed by the restaurant that haven't been kicked out to the curb with the rest of the business model, they're probably in the back on their phones chatting to each other or trying to take pictures and get on Instagram and get some likes. So without being incentivized, the wait staff will um, assume that, especially with the younger people that just assume smartphones do everything because they kind of do for their lives, uh, that everything will just take care of itself. It does not. It does not at all. So if you are running a restaurant and or if you're thinking about replacing a lot of your wait staff with robots, which could be fine given the labor shortage that we're seeing today, you don't want to constantly be hiring a bunch of uh, people not from the country who don't speak the language very well, who are always uh, coming and quitting and coming and quitting and coming and quitting. You get some robots. Now you don't need to spend all that time training them. And you assume that the problems are taken care of. Well, they are not. Not at all. And it's up to you to understand that the there needs to be like um, a, a super waiter or a concierge type person that still goes around the restaurant, 
make sure everything's clean, interacts with the people that might have questions or fields a question if somebody looks very confused. That's that for today. So maybe one day we'll get to the point where the information soup will be tailor-made by the um, AI robots that have been programmed to perfectly replicate the number one ramen chef's super awesome ramen in Japan with all the toppings made according to how that person, that ramen excellency would um, ascribe them to be. But until then, we are left dealing with uh, failed, not failed, but Hmm, struggling business models or um, puttering business models or uh, uh, vast assumptions within the business models that technology is replacing people, but people still need to be part of the stack uh, in which the business model runs. So that's that for today. That's my new product uh, release um, evaluation and assumption. And... I know I'm right about this because I've studied the business models and uh, places like Gusto, Jonathan's and all that. You need to retrain one or two people to be customer forward facing within your restaurant. And they need to be going around um, after the robots or before the robots or in tandem with the robots. Just checking to make sure that the place is comfortable for humans to be in, not only be established for robots to give or hand over food to the humans. So what do you think? Is it for the immigrants? Do you think these jobs or is it for the technology? Is it? Oh, is it? Now, I recorded another podcast today that focused on war and Japan Society 5.0. And some other things as well. Um, But for this one, I wanted to focus on a couple of things. One's kind of gruesome. We might get to the gruesome one in a bit. But the main thing today is going to be the the WEF aspect of the um, crapification of Japan. And how it also ties into the ESG um, environmental sustainable goals and the all of these things, diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's the um, aspect of people that know better than everybody else um, using the levers of society to kind of terraform it into some sort of desired utopian outcome. And a lot of these people like Klaus Schwab have, you know, they, they like they have busts of Lenin in their office, of Vladimir, uh, Vladimir Lenin, and they don't really seem like they're too concerned with regular people. They kind of give the impression that they, they want to get rid of all of us. But Japan is basically on the elite level, on the top end level, on the corporate level, on the journalistic level, is completely all in with the um, SDGs 2030 goals. They, they love Bill Gates. They love the vaccines. Um, they're all in. There's almost no resistance to it. And it's been decided that it's just the way it's going to go. And I predict... That is going to get worse and worse and worse. The Kishida cabinet, the current prime minister of Japan, his approval rating is now below 30 percent. And the more that his and his his whole his whole platform, his uh, of of being the prime minister of Japan was based on something called new capitalism, 
which is just a direct rewording of stakeholder capitalism, which is a book titled by Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum and the writer and author of um, COVID-19, The Great Reset. So they're all in on it. And I've documented this plenty before. There's lots of, um, even before Kishida was prime minister, there's business lobbies in Japan going to Davos ca- talking about the Japan's new capitalism and how it's basically um, stakeholder capitalism. It's it's not me making assumptions. It's them, the, the Japanese elites, rewording the vocabulary, probably so that it's digestible for their Japanese audiences or so that their Japanese audiences don't know that they are basically copying and pasting an existing template of um, economics and control from a a cult like the World Economic Forum and pasting it onto the Japanese population. We are seeing right now a lot of um, churches that have maybe some competitive edge with the World Economic Forum being uh, dismantled right now. The Unification Church, or the so-called Moonies, as a people derisively call them, uh, derisively, uh, has been dismantled and a lot of politicians with connections to the Moonies or the Unification Church, as it's called, are being kind of uh, sidelined in a way. But it's basically just replacing one cult with another. Um, as we move in, you know, post-World War II and post-Korea uh, and a lot of this kind of post-World War, uh, sorry, Cold War mentality going on, which if you look at the history was a lot of the reasons for the Unification Church, which is a kind of a Korean church, and then they work with the um, Japanese political establishment to basically create an anti-communist um, ties, to create anti-communist ties between Korea and Japan, because during the Cold War, which is where a lot of these uh, politicians and churches um, uh, really uh, kind of come to be, um, post-World War II, Korea, communism, all that, they were working with basically the CIA to push away from the hearts and minds of the people the ideas of communism. Um, not a big leap. If you think that's a big leap, I suggest going to your bedroom and putting on your big boy pants and coming back and sitting at the big boy table. That's my suggestion to you. Um, and so all of these things kind of come together with the World Economic Forum now uh, replacing a lot of those previous goals as we move into 2030 and AI and uh, a, a digitally driven society. It's turning a new leaf. And and one aspect of this is what I mentioned to the Japanese government, Japanese elites, Tokyo University, all of them essentially are basically in on the SDG 2030. And they just, they're, they're going for it. They love it. Recently, uh, Prime Minister Kishida met with Bill Gates and Bill Gates awarded Mr. Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida, with um, an SDG award called the Goalkeeper Award or something like that. And on the Japanese government website, um, they said that they want to work more with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and work towards the 2030 goals of self-development, SDGs and all that. So um, hopefully that's enough to say what I have to say. This comes to us from Japan News, my alumni, um, and this is called the TSE, the Tokyo Stock Exchange, launches carbon credit market. And this is where we are. This actually comes to us from GG Press. If it's from the Japan News, I can expect decent English and no details. 
if it's from GG Press, I can expect horrible English, but details. <laughs> and they will never meet. They will good English with good details between these two organizations. Kind of joined at the hip. We'll never meet. Tokyo. The Tokyo Stock Exchange on Wednesday. This comes to us from October 11th. So it's almost a week ago, but this is... Huge news, in my opinion. The Tokyo Stock Exchange on Wednesday launched a carbon credit market for carbon dioxide emissions, trading to promote decarbonization efforts by companies and others. It's hard to put that into a sentence, isn't it? That's a pretty dense sentence. Like I said, good writing. Um, the CO2 emissions uh, reduced and absorbed through measures such as the use of renewable energy and forest management are certified by the Japanese government as J-Credit Carbon Credits, which can be traded among firms and local governments in the new market. By making transaction prices transparent, the new market is expected to help boost the number of participants in the carbon credit system and provide economic incentives for companies and others to promote decarbonization. Again, really good details, actually. Um, it doesn't explain how the system works so far, but it doesn't really make any sense, does it? Does this? They're making the value, and then they're going to make the value have the value, and then you can trade the value for the value. It's almost like... Um, Crypto scams comes across as like a crypto scam, but I've, I remember doing reports on this in like high school and stuff like that. Cause this is a lot of the, when those ideas were floated and it was one of the ideas was like, if you are a company and you are polluting too much, you can buy a forest from a African farmer and then you can use the, um, the amount of oxygen that that forest is producing and leverage it against the amount of carbon dioxide your airplane company is producing, airline company is producing, and then that will make your um, company green. It's like, well, really? <laughs> okay. Yeah, but that forest is already there. But now you get credits for it, you see. Oh, I see it. At a ceremony marking the launch of the carbon credit market, economy, trade, and industry minister Yasutoshi Nishimura said the new market will be, quote, the core of the country's emissions trading system, end quote. The system is, quote, growth-oriented with those who reduce emissions earlier having smaller burdens, end quote, Nishimura explained. Well, it's a tax. He voiced the expectations that related investments by firms will become more active. The new market is expected to allow companies that can cut more CO2 emissions to receive more carbon credits and sell them to make a profit. Meanwhile, firms emitting a large amount of CO2 can buy carbon credits to meet their emissions reductions target if they find it difficult to achieve the targets on their own. For the time being, carbon credit trading on the TSE will be limited to J credits. Two auctions are held each trading day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon, and the results are announced online. The carbon credit market initially has 188 registered participants, including power companies, financial institutions, trading houses, and local governments. Oh, yes. Sounds like a bunch of farmers and hippies are involved with this, doesn't it? Sounds like a, a giant co grassroots collective, huh? Providing, into, providing sufficient carbon credits and building trust in the new market are seen as key to promoting transactions. So, again, giant Ponzi scheme, but this is, of course, just... Um, the Japanese government trying to find value in new markets. And because they're all in 
on the scams of um, SDGs and they're all in on the scams of decarbonization and they're all in on these scams and literally it seems like nothing else. They're taking all the existing industries and turning them into SDG goals um, and then trying to find ways to make credits and you trade for those credits and if you get enough good credits, the government gives you a pat on the, on the head and they say, good boy, you pay less this year. Pay less what? pay less what but as as so japan is usually like a laggard in a lot of these movements and by the time previously by the time a movement would come and go the world was kind of so <laughs> disambiguated i don't know is that the right word just unconnected it wouldn't really matter so much um, you could have a hippie movement grow in the 60s on in, in America, and you could have a hippie movement grow in the 80s in Thailand, for example, and they wouldn't really meet. Or another example would be the music industry in the 90s. You could have grunge explode, and then it dies down, but then a lot of other countries in the late 90s and the early 2000s, they pick up grunge, and you go to these countries... And they're doing like Alice in Chains covers perfectly or uh, all that stuff. But now that we are all evolved in these like, uh, it's just all, it's all super connected now, which is why when Russia invades the Donbass, the price of fertilizer goes up because Russia is removed from the SWIFT system. And now the um, farmers in Colombia can't get the fertilizer from Russia that they had previously. So the leaves don't grow as much on their coffees, on their coffee uh, plantations. And it subjects the, the, the cherries to more sunlight, which makes the beans less delicious. And now it increases the cost for importing beans from Colombia to Japan because of the price increases due to the oil increases. And now as a result, we have more expensive coffee that doesn't taste as good because of this hyper hyper interconnectivity that is going on between the nation states. But as these movements come and go, once you're locked into these movements, well, now the, the, the effect of one movement moving on while another movement is, is just coming up might create more imbalances or might even create more windows of opportunity for the predator class to um, pry open uh, these windows of opportunity and extract uh, more or even create um, debt markets like some sort of belt and road initiative, but in terms of you know, global sustainability targets and markets. So one country establishes these sustainable target markets for uh, according to spec but two years later, it's announced that it has to be changed completely. And now that government that's in initiated these steps has to now uh, recombobulate. It's not a technical word, but um, uh, change their existing specs to the new specs to match the specs. Because if they don't, then they probably won't be able to trade as much in volumes as, and get the rewards that, that are the cherry, the, the carrot and the stick approach that is often uh, accompanied by these um, global movements. So um, that was just kind of a riff off the top of my head. But let's take a look now as some uh, markets are moving away from uh, green myths. Uh, this comes to us from oilprice.com via zerohedge.com. Uh, and, you know, we have the Tokyo Stock Exchange. We have the New York Stock Exchange. We have the all these kind of, it's all very connected these days. And that's a very high concern of mine, especially when we look at the um, impact on uh, prices for uh, energy and um, how that affects the supply chains. And the supply chains is essentially how you get your stuff to your door from wherever it's coming from. It's not necessarily the watermelon grower next door, is it? 
So we all know there's no watermelon growers next door anymore. Um, New York state authorities have rejected a request by Orsted BP, British Petroleum, the uh, Gulf of Mexico fiasco that happened in late 2000s. I remember the name right now. And Equinor for raising the price of electricity in future power purchases contracts featuring offshore wind energy. <clears throat> offshore wind developers have been pressured by rising raw material and component costs and higher borrowing costs, which has cast doubt over the viability of many projects. Indeed, Reuters reported that some projects planned for the waters off the coast of New York may be need, maybe need, maybe need to be reconsidered in light of the authority's decision. Sunrise Wind is an offshore project with a planned capacity of 924 megawatts, you know, operating at full capacity and full wind. What if the wind ain't blowing, huh? That could supply electricity to 600,000 households. Not that much, actually. According to Orsdale, it would also involve several hundred million dollars in investment in the state and 800 jobs. 800 jobs, 100 million dollars, 600,000 households. Hmm. Um... These projects, quote, these projects must be financially sustainable to proceed, end quote, the president of Equinor Renewables Americas told Reuters, referring to the offshore wind projects in the Norwegian energy uh, major is leading in the U.S. Per Reuters, Equinor is involved in three projects with British Petroleum. Uh, indeed, rising costs have compromised the financial sustainability of many wind power projects and earlier this year led to the cancellation of a large scale one off the coast of the U.K., it goes on from there. All I'm trying to say is that as we have this carbon credit market going, um, other places that were establishing uh, quite complex wind offshore wind farm things that would would be included in some sort of future calculation of the amount of renewables being used in the grid. Well, those are now being canceled. So, what happens to the carbon met credit market then? when there are suddenly fewer places that are offering a, um, a, a venue for such carbon credit markets to exist. Next one, the net zero ship is starting to sink. Good titles, huh? Again, from Zero Hedge. But this is from uh, the Epic Times. Are we observing the early stages of worldwide resistance against constraints of net zero policies? Again, Japan is all in on the net zero 2050 stuff. All in. Investors are ditching renewable energy faster than any other funds on record. And this comes to us as the Prime Minister of Japan, uh, Mr. Kijida, has called for Larry Fink and BlackRock to invest in Japan. So notice how, like, how do you have both of those happening at the same time? Reuters reports that renewable energy funds suffered a net outflow of, excuse me, $1.4 billion in the July to September 2023 quarter. No small cookie. Um, Lipper data shows this to be the largest ever quarterly outflow. There was also a 23% decline from the end of June of the total assets under management in the sector, now valued at $65.4 billion. To have $1.3 billion, 1.4 billion 
to have a $1.4 billion outflow out of a $65.4 billion market is quite huge. The S&P Global Clean Energy Index is also down by 30% this year, with most of the decline occurring since July. The index comprises major solar and wind power companies and other renewables-related businesses. Yet in contrast, the S&P 500 Energy Index, which is oil and gas heavy, has increased slightly this year. It is not just investors who are exiting net zero. Politicians are also raising concerns. Australian has done so. Australia politicians has done so. Um, almost everything we grow, we make, we do in our society relies on the use of fossil fuels, Australian Nationals Senator Matt Canavan said. Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, agrees. Have you ever listened to Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace? He hates what the green movement has become. He thinks it's batshit insanity, and I totally agree. I was all in on this stuff up until about 10, 15 years ago, when it was more about pollution and reducing pollution, and then it became about climate change, and then it became about reducing climate change, and then it became about getting rid of all of the farms because farms cause climate change. What are these people talking about? Get out of here. He told Tucker Carlson, if we banned fossil fuels, agricultural production would collapse in a very short period of time. People will begin to starve. Oh, that's called decarbonization. And half the population will die in a very short period of time. Yes. How else are you supposed to meet your 2050 goals of net zero? How else are you supposed to decarbonize without killing half the people in the world over a period of 10 years? Uh, it's a death cult. Governments across the world are bucking the net zero trend. Um, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has delayed banning new petrol and diesel cars. France's President Macron has said gas boilers will not be banned. The New Zealand's government is heading for opposition. They just won, but I don't think New Zealand's conservative government is going to be any different than their um, previous government under Jacinda Ardern. The taxing of livestock for methane emissions and transforming sheep and cattle farms into pine plantations has caused a revolt among rural voters. <laughs> I've always thought that. They're like, yeah, if you just eat bugs, uh, if you eat, if you, it, it, instead of beef, it'll be better for the environment. What are you supposed to do? It's like you come home with like a pile of corn and a pile of bugs to your family and you're like, bon appetit. Uh, Jap Germany is planning to resurrect uh, its coal plants. Um, U.S. presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. believes that real environmentalism is about protecting natural habitats. It is. Even Bill Gates now says that, quote, no temperate country is going to become uninhabitable. Don't know what that means, but he's a psycho. He bought up a bunch of farmland and he also has these ideas of he just has crazy ideas. Not good. Um, so as we can see that we're not going to finish the rest of the article, I'll be publishing these um, links up to MatthewPMBigelow.com where you can review them and read them for yourself uh, without my commentary. MatthewPMBigelow.com. Um, so those are kind of the, that that's that's the main crux for, for today's podcast is that while we have carbon credit markets launching in Japan, and Japan is usually a laggard, a typical Japanese strategy in most things when it comes to technology is to monitor it closely from afar, see where it's successful, see where it's not successful, 
and then see how they can incorporate the best examples from all the other examples into a Japanese example. And it might be 20 or 30 years behind other countries, but then they don't in Japan, they don't make all the mistakes. So they catch up rapidly after that. But that's in the era of uh, mechanized items and things like sh- bullet trains and Shinkansens and airplanes and all that stuff with a lot of this like um, real time data and AI and, and, and markets and everything being a 24 seven data driven digital economy. You wait 20 years. <laughs> it's, a, it's like you're, you're in a different universe. You're basically driving a buggy in a carriage while everyone is flying around in spaceships and in these types of environments. So this strategy that Japan has, um, it has worked in the past, but when it comes to what it's doing now, it becomes like a laggard. And then by the time it's established, everything's already changed in these, um, in these globalist interoperability mm, in these, Mm, globalist interop, interoperable globalist ambitions and uh, you kind of get caught, caught behind the curve and there's no way to remedy that once you're once you're behind in these things so I'm not sure if the carbon credit market will be a success or not it seems like a really stupid idea and it seems like a giant brain drain um, uh, that's going to afflict the stock markets and 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 then the stock analysts and all the brains that require the um, stock market to make sense or to make profit for other people. It seems like this is going to be just like a cancer draining the blood and the energy from the existing market that's uh, profitable and um, successful. So I, I consider it a new cancer in the markets. Moving on. Uh, Japan, Japanese with good impression of South Korea hits all time high. Thank you very much. 60% of people in Japan think livelihoods worsened under Kishida government. That's very true. Japanese vulnerable to energy shocks as 95% of its oil is from Middle East. Yeah. And Japan criticizes Russian ban on seafood following the release of treated radioactive water. Yeah. Uh, previously, Japan banned the um, export of used cars to Russia amid the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, and, uh, then Russia turns around and says, all right, well, we're not going to import your, um, radioactive seafood. So suck it. And then, uh, Japanese officials say, oh, oh, how dare you? How regrettable. Oh, why aren't you taking our seafood? It's a, it's safe. We promise it's safe. And they're like, we don't care. We don't want it. You can't have it both ways, Japan. <laughs> you, you found a reason to ban Car parts to us or cars to us, we're just going to turn around and tit for tat ya. Uh, we're not even going to be too transparent about it. We'll just say it's because of all the radioactive water in the ocean that you're releasing. And now you can't escape that um, tainted image you still have. Despite the G7 nations eating the fish from the treated waters of the Fukushima power plant. Uh, we're still going to paint you with that brush. Sorry, you're dirty. China too. Sorry, you're dirty. It's not like Russia and China are super clean places either. But anyways, that's just kind of a a funny tit-for-tat geopolitical experience. And what I do hope that happens, what I hope happens is that um, all of this fish that would normally be exported all over the world gets sold internally within Japan at much cheaper prices because we are seeing such crazy rapid increases in prices i mean you just put four of those fish together and sell them at quarter of the price we're gonna be we're gonna be loving the japanese fishing industry um with or without the treated water 
Um, let's take a look next at a weird corner. Weird corner. And this ties into, of course, uh, how could it not? The coronavirus. Coronavirus. The Wuhan flu doesn't kill you. The media panic will. Now do whatever the government tells you to do. Now, this doesn't necessarily come to us from a Japanese perspective, but it's something that I've been wanting to cover for a while. Embalmers. Um, have you heard about this? And I've heard about it, and then I, I think it's crazy, and then I hear about it, and I think, oh, of course. But then I hear about it again, and I think it's crazy. It's like that old joke where one one week you're watching a documentary about the meerkat, and then some sort of predator attacks the meerkat, and you're like, how dare you, predator? Meerkats, go! Then the next week, it's about the predator attacking the meerkat, and you're like, go, get those meerkats! This, this kind of comes to me the same way. Some embalmers, this comes to us from ZeroHedge.com, Big Zero Hedge Day today via Epic Times. Some embalmers say white fibrous clots are showing up. It's COVID related. Others say it's a conspiracy theory. Have you heard about this? The, the white, like these giant clots that are appearing in vaccinated dead bodies where the embalmers are like, the blood's not coming out. And then they find like a, a, a blocked artery or whatever, and then they take it out. It's just like a like a 10 centimeter long white fibrous thing, and they don't know what it is. And I'm like, that sounds crazy. And then you have embalmers saying, I've seen this a lot, especially after the vaccine boosters came out. I'm like, whoa. And then other people are like, what are you talking about? I've been dissecting bodies like all week for years, every week for years, I haven't seen any of this stuff. You're crazy. And I'm like, yeah, you're crazy. So again, I don't know what this is. I just think it's super interesting. Some embalmers say starting uh, in 2021, they began suddenly seeing an anomaly during that process of embalming, a phenomenon of long rubbery white masses inside the blood vessels. Others say they have seen nothing new. The Epic Times contacted embalmers and funeral directors from around the world to understand the disparity. An Oklahoma mortician responded saying, quote, Yes, the embalmers at this funeral location have all encountered this phenomenon, each multiple times during embalming in the last two years, end quote. A funeral director in Pennsylvania told the Epic Times, quote, We've seen this stuff, absolutely. We've seen it enough to discuss it within the company, end quote. The mortician said his company thought the white fibrous clots were just an anomaly. Quote, what do I attribute it to? I don't know. I've never seen anything like it previously, end quote, he said. Quote, as far as numbers, it's hard to say. When we first started noticing it in 2021, it was like, quote, oh, wow, I wonder what, what their cholesterol was off the charts, end quote. Notice how like embalmers might not be conspiracy theorists. They just are doing their jobs and then things start appearing and then they don't know what it is, but there's a lot to do. So they just move on with the job, right? Um, on the other hand, many of the respondents to the Epic Times survey said that not only, had, not only had they not seen the fibrous masses in the bodies they embalmed, but they considered the reports from other embalmers and funeral directors to be nonsense. 
quote, it's all nonsense. COVID vaccine conspiracy theory, expletive. A Canadian embalmer told the Epic Times in an email, we embalm over 400 bodies yearly and have never seen this. Okay, so they don't say it, but notice how defensive they are. <laughs> Canadians are very defensive about this stuff. I've had to remove several from my life. I'm Canadian and they are just like normies. Several respondents from Canada, Australia, and the UK say they haven't seen any of the white fibrous clots, with one calling it a ridiculous claptrap. However, responses from 11 embalmers in the United States, Canada, and New Zealand tell a similar story of white fibrin masses clogging the circulatory systems of the newly deceased since 2021. Some speculate that their disobstructions have something to do with COVID-19 or the COVID-19 vaccines, although no research exists to substantiate such a connection. Dr. Ryan Cole, an Idaho pathologist who said that he's conducted a lot of autopsies in his career, said normal post-mortem blood clots are real and jelly-like. Quote, they're not white and rubbery, end quote. He said it in a 2022 interview on American Thought Leaders, a program by uh, Epic Times, hosted by Yanya Kellick. Dr. Cole attributes the presence of public dialogue within the medical community regarding the clots to institutional fear. And it goes on from there. Um, <laughs> I don't know what to make of this. All I know is that uh, I, I, I don't have them, I hope. And um, who knows if like a lot of the deaths that have occurred uh, were because of these clots that were formed from the virus, from the vaccine, from something else that we weren't noticing because everything was being focused on the virus and the vaccine. I don't know. But um, this, it just, I've seen some pictures too of people um, analyzing them and, and people are saying these are self replicating AI proteins that have gone astray and the, the spike protein from the vaccine is helping create these. I'm like, what? I, okay, I don't know about that. But then other people are saying like, well, maybe these people had severe health issues and something happened in connection with their vaccine or with um, the infection of COVID-19, which is probably a bioweapon from the um, released by released from the Chinese Institute of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. OK, maybe that's true. I don't know. I really don't know. I'm not taking a side. All I know is that I've seen multiple reports of people saying I'm seeing a lot of these weird, long, white, fibrous, protein, self-assembly clots. I'm like, self-assembly? Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. That's the weird corner, and that's the virus for today. Coronavirus. The Wuhan flu doesn't kill you. The media panic will. Is that media now panic? do whatever the government tells you to do. today. Today might be a little bit of a shorter episode. Mm, wow, is that it? Hmm. Let me just look at this for a second here. All right, last, last one. Let's take a look at a little China. As you know, there's something called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is China's ambitions to kind of create a, um, a intercontinental trade network based on China as a manufacturing center and creating infrastructure via the roads or maritime routes and trains to um, kind of encompass the world into a, a Chinese-style economy. 
based on uh, WeChat and Alipay systems with smartphones and the Chinese uh, digital renminbi or the digital yuan to back it all up to trade one yuan within this network. So a lot of people say that the China's economy is all crazy and it's all going downhill and that China's about to collapse. And I'm, I really don't see it that way. They're, they're too smart for that. And um, they're also willing to experiment on large scales. The Great Leap Forward killed 65 million people and just same government still in charge after that. So they're willing to take risks. Let's just say that much. So the Chinese government may be willing to risk collapsing a lot of its um, Western tied economy in order to fulfill larger goals and maybe even to wound itself and the Western world via the investments that's gone into its real estate and all that. Um, just so that it causes panic and chaos within the Western financial markets and then gives China the opportunity to reinforce and um, uh, uh, put a wall around its existing infrastructure regarding the Belt and Road Initiative. And one example of that, uh, of the of the J China is not collapsing argument would be coming to us from uh, japantoday.com on October 16th. We're recording this on October 17th, 2023. Leaders from emerging economies are visiting China for the Belt and Road Forum. Beijing. Leaders of emerging market countries are arriving in Beijing for a meeting organized by the Chinese government that will mark the 10th anniversary of its Belt and Road Initiative. More than a dozen leaders from Africa, Asia, and the Mideast were flying into Beijing on Monday following the arrivals of Chilean President Gabriel Boric and Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban on Sunday. So the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban going to Beijing, right to China. Right to Xi Jinping. Under the Belt and Road Initiative, a signature policy of Xi, uh, Chinese companies have built ports, roads, railways, power plants, and other infrastructure around the world in a bid to boost trade and economic growth. But the massive Chinese development loans that funded the projects have also burdened some power countries, some poorer countries with heavy debts. Sorry. A flurry of diplomacy is expected on the sidelines of the third Belt and Road Forum, whose main events are on Wednesday. Orban met Sunday with Chinese leader Xi Jinping and Premier Li Kuang. I don't know how to say his name. Hungary State News Media um, MT1 said, MTI said, the forums were also held in 2017 and 2019. Russian President Vladimir Putin is expected to attend the forum as are representatives from the, of the Taliban government in Afghanistan. A key uh, roadway, sorry, a key mm, geographical point for many roads that could be developed through Afghanistan into European markets to facilitate more and more trade. Probably a lot better than what the CIA did with its uh, opium production, huh? What would you rather do? Produce opium or make roads? America had its choice. The leaders who arrived on Monday included Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, Sri Lankan President Ranil, oh geez, Rick Wem Singh, Republic of Congo President Denis Sassou Nguso, Papua New Guinean Prime Minister James Marap, and Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Manet. So kind of like a, some lower tier countries, probably looking for some opportunities, but might be a little bit tired of the International Monetary Forum or Fund, the IMF. And, um, all of the uh, the debt traps that they also include. So kind of an interesting idea, real hodgepodge of countries going over to China, check out what they have on offer, see if they can might be able to tap into the, the developing infrastructure to extract quite a lot of wealth down the road. As we know, 
when you build roads and subways and stuff like that, it really creates a lot of value over time. Uh, the amount of construction that goes up and just the amount of money that gets spent and the amount of people that end up using it. Um, it only makes sense to try to cash in on it. Whether everybody will be um, adopted into some sort of Chinese dystopian nightmare or not, like Victor Orban walking around with his Chinese credit score and he tweets something bad and now he can't use vending machines and the drones start chasing him around um, Budapest. I don't know if that's going to happen, but be pretty funny if it did. Um, I think that's going to be it for today. All right, that's it. All right. Two podcasts. One day we'll be publishing this tomorrow. Uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Consider going over to MatthewPMBigelow.com for show notes, photos, and more. You can also make a d- donation at uh, PayPal via paypal.me forward slash Japan WUT. That's paypal.me forward slash Japan WUT. We are also um, podcasting to compliant apps, meaning that you can take your um, app that you can download. I use Podverse. There's a whole bevy of new apps that are being released and they're they're developing protocols according to um, freedom, basically, where you can use advanced technology but not be sucked into the hellscape of big tech. And Podcasting 2.2, is all about that. Uh, tech, check out Podverse, check out CurioCaster, check out Fountain. There's a lot of apps you can use. And you can also donate um, Satoshi's Bitcoin micropayments directly from the app, uh, meaning from the user and to the um, the podcaster, you know, for example, me. Uh, check it out. Get your Get Albi wallet going. Set up a podcasting 2.0 compliant app. Join in on the fun and get ahead of the censorship that's coming down the line. A whole bunch of government regulations are going into effect. Uh, the Canadian government, the European government, the American government, the Chinese government, and even supranational corporations like Apple, um, Spotify, all of them. They're all going down the censorious route. And an off-ramp to that is Podcasting 2.0. You don't even need to donate anything through it. Just get involved in the protocols and get ahead of the censorship. I'm using Podverse for the most part. MatthewPMBigelow.com is where you can go again. Thank you for listening, everybody. Coming at you from the Samoncho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. It is I, Matt Bigelow, bidding you Ja Mata Ne. From the armpit of Asia. Asia.